It was wonderful, but it just left me longing to fast forward to this moment, the moment we just had. There's something about seeing people authentically respond to God's goodness. That's just so confirming and reconfirming of how awesome he is, how real he is, how active he is. So I praise him for that this morning. We're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 13. We pray right now, Father God, that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit of the living God is saying, that we would have ears only for your words, only for your truth, that anything that is of Eric or from Eric would literally fall on deaf ears, and that only the seed you have for this congregation, for this moment, would come forth, take root, and bear much fruit. And we ask this morning for sanctification by your truth. May it come forth like a hammer and like fire. Like only your word can. Like only your word does. Give us the capacity to hear in the spirit today. Words that are spirit. That accomplish your will. Your purposes. Be done today in this gathering as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, Deuteronomy 13. We're going to read two texts right off the bat here. And um, and then we're going to come back to them in just a little bit. So someone remind us the context for the book of Deuteronomy. Who, what, when, where, and why? Moses. Repeating of the law. When? Just prior to dying and passing the torch to Joshua to take the children of God into the promised land. So why did Moses need to give this second giving of the law? This is the second generation. First generation did what? They stalled out. Hear the word of the Lord, saints. Stalling out is... Yeah. It's a good way to miss out on God's promises. We'll put it that way. You'll know you're stalling out. Or one of the fruits of stalling out is desiring to go back to where you came from. Because hanging out in the middle sucks. 
Hanging out in the middle is no good. Okay, so children of Israel have been hanging out in the middle. And therefore the whole first generation does not see the promises of God fulfilled. So Moses has to give the second giving of the law to the second generation. And one of the things that he mentions that we're going to get ready to read has to do with false prophecy, false prophets, and false teachings. And this is the first time this warning comes, but if you know the word, you know that this warning comes over and over and over and over, and that it's a necessary warning because the impact and the influence of false teachers and false prophets on the people of God run throughout the story. It's always the same message. It's always for the same purpose. It'll come with slightly different specifics, but the heart is always the same. And so listen to the heart of false prophecy and then listen to the protection against false prophecy. That's what Moses is getting ready to give for the first time. It's repeated over and over in the prophets and in the New Testament, but this is the first time it's mentioned. Let's listen to Moses. Someone want to read that for us? Okay, pause right there and just take that in for a second. There's a couple of details given. Someone, someone highlight one possibility when a false prophet or a false teacher is in place, one possibility that makes that person credible. According to this text. What's that? Right? Like signs and wonders. Actual signs and wonders. Does that make a, a person's teaching or prophecy believable? Yeah. If we're honest, is that working in the church today? Yeah. If we're honest. Just because a, pers a person is capable of Signs and wonders does not make them credible. This is what Moses is saying. And there is a single reason why we can know a false prophet or a false teacher is not credible because of the very next thing that he says. What is the purpose and goal? And this is going to be the foundation of all false, false prophecy, the false, foundation of all false prophets, the foundation of all false teaching, and the false foundation of all false teachers, that was a tongue twister, is going to be this next thing he mentions. What is their goal always? Go after other gods. That's it, period. It doesn't matter how miraculous the miracle is. It doesn't matter how charismatic the leader is. It doesn't matter how astonishing the teaching or the prophecy or the word might be. 
If the purpose behind it is to lead you to another God, it's a false prophet. And perhaps, according to this text, what Moses is saying, maybe the more spectacular they are, the more God is actually doing what? What's he say God is doing in this situation? Testing, testing us. Right? This is not to the 21st century church, by the way. Although, man, it sure could be. This is to the children of God in the wilderness. Okay, the game has never changed. The players have never changed. The sides have never changed. Right, the enemy's mouthpieces are always going to look the same, foundationally trying to accomplish the same thing. Turn our hearts away from God towards false gods. So what's the remedy? What's the protection? What's the prescription to ensure that we not fall victim to this? Go ahead, Angie. Do what? Hold fast to him. Hold fast to him. Saints, if we aren't holding fast to God, we're going to be a victim. If we aren't clinging to God, we will be deceived. Go ahead, Angie. How big of a deal is that? Any speaking, any teaching, any prophecy, anything that turns the people of God away from God, how big of a deal is that? This is instruction. Right? This is life or death, according to the God of the Bible. It's not to be taken lightly. This cannot be taken lightly. What cannot? Any teaching or prophecy or sign or wonder or anything that turns the people of God away from the God of the Bible. And the only way to not fall victim to that is to cling to God. And how do we cling to God? What's it say? Walk in his ways. Keep his commandments. Hold fast to his statutes and his judgments and his precepts. This is not to the 21st century church in America. This is to the children of God in the wilderness. And it's such a big deal to the person that is doing anything to lead the people of God away from God. They're to be put to death. It's a big deal. What's that? Oh my goodness, is it ever. Go ahead and finish that text, Angie, through verse 5. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. What is all false prophecy going to entice? What's it going to entice? Not walking according to the commandments of God. Isn't that what it says? A false prophet or a false teacher is going to entice you to not walk in God's ways. Isn't that what it says? I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Go ahead, Angie. 
Okay, now let's go to the opposite end of the Bible. Second Timothy chapter 4. The amount of references to this false type of prophecy, false type of teaching throughout the story. I mean, literally, it's pretty much the theme of the entire Old Testament story. Jesus comes and warns about it. The epistles come and, and warn us about it. Timothy, uh, we're going to hear in first, or Second Timothy, we're going to hear how, how Paul um, makes this clear to Timothy and us regarding, let's say, the times that we are in. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, if someone wants to read that, please. I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Do what? Preach the word. Do what? Preach the word. Why? Go ahead, Naomi. Be instant in season. Out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust they shall keep to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things. Endure affliction. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of that ministry. Amen. So the, by the time we get to this point in the story, the problem isn't only with false prophets and false teachers leading others to turn towards false gods. But there is actually a desire in the church and a seeking after of those teachers. And what's, what's the teacher always going to do? What's the foundation of it? Entice you to do what? Not keep God's commandments. Why? Because it's the keeping of God's commandments. That is the, that is the activity of clinging to him. It's in his commandments that our protection is found. Okay, so let's pause on these two texts for just a second. Yes, ma'am. Next question. So forward it says, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside with fables. Am I understanding that correctly, that it would also indicate that in this time, when you speak right now, like it might not feel like they already are hearing the truth. So it's not like they don't know the truth, so they're being turned away. Correct. But they actually know the truth, and then they're being turned away. Correct. So they're making an active decision or Correct. choice to turn away from the truth. Correct. Is that right? Yep. So it's not, we're not talking about people who are non-believers who don't know about the truth. These are people who are yep. believers that know about the truth and then turn. Correct. Okay. That is the great apostasy. Paul warns about turning away from the truth, falling away from the truth, rejecting of the truth. How profoundly can the truth be rejected I'm born a boy and I decide I'm a girl 
That's how profoundly the truth can be rejected. Right? It sounds science fiction. Sounds like something out of a movie. But that's the level of depravement when we swap the worship of the creator for the worship of the created. God hands us over to a futility of thinking or debasement of mind. And we just begin, everything gets twisted. Everything gets diluted. Everything gets turned. Evil becomes good and good becomes evil. Truth becomes lies and lies become the truth. This is the world we live in, saints. And a part of this world has been created by false teachers and false prophets that are given power to literally do signs and wonders and miraculous things. And their agenda is always the same. Turn towards a, a, a false god. Reject the truth. Turn away from the truth. Do not stand for the truth. Do not hold to the truth. Do not love the truth. Do not learn the truth. Do not demand the truth without compromise. And that's the warning that Paul gives Timothy. People are going to start looking for that. People are going to start desiring that. And for the most part, whenever you see a large crowd, that's often what they're getting. So pause there for a second and let's go back to um, last week's discussion on the three stages in the life of anyone who was authentically born again as clearly taught in scripture is justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification being a single act. The spirit-enabled, spirit-empowered, God-ordained first opening of the eyes, first turning of the heart, first repentance. And in that single moment, a, a transaction happens and the Bible says we are regenerated. Something new happens. Something new comes. A new creation comes. We are justified before the Father in right standing and right relationship with him. The perfectness of Christ applied to us. A glorious single act. From that single act, every day forward until we die is the sanctification process. The process of being ongoingly transformed and conformed as adopted sons into the image of the only begotten son. Amen. That one is ongoing. That's why the primary scriptural metaphor for it is a path or a journey or a way right and that way leads towards the culmination of God's plan which is glorification that is the glorious culmination of God's will a brand new heaven and a brand new earth everyone who belongs to God bodily resurrected and glorified incorruptible bodies like I show in my awesome picture. 
Okay, so the, the Lord's focusing us on the sanctification piece and the, the cool thing that he's kind of doing for me as we unpack this yet again is he's reminding me that as we look at the age to come, um, one of the very clear, bless you, aspects of it is the, the sovereignty of God in the rule and reign of God, the absolute rule and reign of God in the age to come is to where this whole thing is headed. It, you, you cannot preach Jesus, teach Jesus, or talk about Jesus without talking about kingdom. He, he always only talked about kingdom. It was never religion, right? Always kingdom. And so to understand the sanctification process, pull it out of religion, guys, pull it out of Christianity and put it in kingdom of heaven understanding. It's, it's literally training for the age to come. It's practice and training and teaching, not just to be a part of the age to come but to literally rule and reign in the age to come like to me that's so much more cool and so much more exciting that everything is headed towards a time in which God will rule and reign with absolute sovereignty there will be no deception in the land truth will be truth his ways will be walked in perfectly. We will know him face to face with an undivided heart. And the extent to which we will embrace the sanctification process, we are being trained for that very destiny. And so as in the age to come, nothing that cannot or will not or does not bend a knee to God, nothing is there. No sin, no idols, no false gods, no false teachers, no false prophets. None of the nonsense is there. So as we journey towards that, God begins to remove from us all that nonsense. And this is the sanctification process. It happens when the word is taught. When the word is taught, the word will expose the things in us that do not please God, that are no longer for us, that are part of our old life or our old man or our old self, right? They're the gods on this side of the Jordan. And God's saying, you don't cross the Jordan until you leave those gods behind. And that is an ongoing process. Everything that comes between us and him, he loves us too much and his love is too jealous to allow us to drag it with us. So the father's discipline that he gives to his legitimate sons is, you're not bringing that anymore. You can't drag that with you anymore. And whereas Jesus' first lines of public ministry it was always repent for the kingdom of heaven is what? It's at hand. 
we know because of our study in the fall that there's a major event leading towards this culmination that happens at the final trumpet. We know that Christ returns in the robe dipped in blood with the sword proceeding from his mouth with which he will strike the nations and he will tread the winepress of the fierceness of God Almighty with heaven's armies following him. And he will establish absolute rule in this place. And that is our future, the future for which we are being trained. But Christ never said the kingdom of heaven is coming or the kingdom of heaven is then it was always, it's at hand. It's always, it's now. It's always, it's here. Right? So, so like Luke 19 says, um, you don't bury what I'm showing you. Yeah, we, don't, we as the saints of God to Diane's point, we don't hunker down and, and wait it out. Right? God's calling us to act upon what he's showing us. You guys remember Luke 19, Aminas? You sow, you 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 bury what's been what's been given. That does not please the Father. You 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 re-sow, reinvest, act upon the truth. Massive rewards are given. So it makes sense to me that Jesus says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, do and teach all the commandments. Why? Because that, that's how the kingdom is. That's the way it will be in the age to come. If it's going to be done in the age to come, start doing it now. If it's not going to be done in the age to come, stop doing it now. If you want to be least in the kingdom of heaven, ignore the commandments. This is what he says in Luke 19, or Luke 5.19. Right? Because... because Clinging to God and walking in his ways, keeping his commandments, aligning with his statutes, his judgments, his precepts, it is how we hold fast to him. And this sanctification process where it begins with a single moment of repentance that you and I get no credit for, that we have no boasting in, that is only by God's Spirit, empowered by, by God's Spirit, and with God's permission. After that moment, these decisions are up to us. And this is what the Lord is speaking to us. If you are born again, and if you have embraced the sanctification process, the, the need to repent is ongoing. It is ongoing. If the Father is calling you to himself, the need to repent is ongoing. If the Father is calling you to himself, the need to prune is ongoing. And how does that happen? Just like we said, when the word is taught and it, and it 
highlights in your life incongruency, the spirit is going to come and bring a conviction. And when that spirit convicts, a choice must be made. And when that choice, when we come to that crossroads, saints, here's the encouragement I'm giving you today. Recognize the gloriousness of that moment. Recognize the glorious battle of that moment. Listen to me. The lukewarm church that is made up in, met, in high percentage of falsely converted people or even just admitted non-believers, they do not have that moment. They do not have the moment of conviction. They do not have the eyes to see where their life is out of alignment with the word of God. And so if we have a life of decision after decision after decision after decision based on spirit conviction and illumination by the word, praise God. The hypocrite does not know that battle, saints. Only the called ones of God know that battle. Only the sheep of his pasture know that struggle, the struggle against sin, the struggle against the flesh, the struggle against the old man. That is real only if you are authentically born again. So the very area that we hate talking about, that we hate preaching about, that we struggle so much to deal with, it's the most glorious spot in the Christian walk. Only experienced by those who have the Spirit of God in them. So praise God for it. What the Lord is showing us is that that moment is hugely important. It's usually important for every one of our individual walks. How close to the Lord are we going to get? And this is where sanctification and behavior modification differ vastly. Because sanctification is transformation that is ongoingly leading us closer and closer to the Lord. Right? Sanctification is transformation that finds itself in the larger redemptive story, which is God is reconciling all things unto himself through Christ. Right? So it's not just behavior modification static. As I sit here, I'm going to stop doing these things and start doing those things. This is transformation on a journey towards the Father. Amen? So all of these things should give us encouragement to fight this fight together. Fight it together, guys. Battle. Be okay being uncomfortable. Be okay having questions and hard conversations. A lot is at stake in these moments. A lot of it's, is at stake in each of these moments of decision. Because in addition to how close to the Father are we going to get, we also, last week, the Lord showed us that togetherness is very much on the line also. That, that these moments of of decision, these moments where we are either going to be sanctified, obey and be sanctified, or disobey and sin. 
These moments are huge for our togetherness, our unity. And it's because the Lord has put this thing together to walk it out together. There are, there are tools within the body of Christ, tools within the community of believers that are in place to foster and encourage and empower these right decisions. The, the decisions to be sanctified, the de decisions to submit to the word, the decisions to allow for a pruning or an addition, right? We are supposed to do it together. And when we do it right, it works. It's just like a marriage. Like the, I really feel like the Lord has for two weeks now said, we got to get on the same page about this thing. It's just like a married couple. If a married couple is united about the journey towards the Father, it is powerful what can be done. It is powerful the encouragement that that brings. But if a couple is at odds, right? If, it, if it, this is why being equally yoked is so huge. If a couple is at odds on that journey, it is very difficult. And the same is true of, a, of this household. If we are in this together and committed to this together, it's a powerful thing that can be created. A unity that is supernatural, a love for one another, a commitment for each other, a refusal to compromise in each other's walks is powerful. So, so just like a, a, a marriage is God's creation by God's design for God's purposes for the accomplishment of God's will and the only way a marriage works is if it's aligned perfectly with God's commandments the same's got to be done in this community we got to stick with what's written as it relates to how we walk out sanctification in community Everyone agree with me? That we need to stick with what's written as it relates to how we walk out sanctification in community. Agree? Okay. Then let's... Um, then let me just remind us... Um, of sort of what I feel like the Lord's shown me regarding my role in this. And um, and that begins with me saying and, re and repeating that absolutely the only thing that qualifies me to lead in any way is Christ formed in me. Period. That is the only thing that would ever qualify anyone to lead anybody else. And so the first thing that I mentioned last week is, is my own commitment to my own sanctification is a verbal commitment I make to each of you and to, and to the Lord. 
that my number one priority is my own personal sanctification, which is to say my life honoring and obeying God first above every other priority, every other possible decision or focus. And that's because there's a, let's, let's read real quick, 1 Timothy chapter 3. There's a very clear list of the fruits that will be present in the life of anyone who is overseeing a, a congregation. And I read this list and, and I'll just re-verbalize that it is my commitment to embrace the sanctification process until my life reflects this list. And anywhere in my life that there is incongruency with this list, I give every one of you not just permission, but I ask you to bring it to my attention. Is everyone clear about that? Someone want to read that for us? First Corinthians, I'm sorry, First Timothy 3, 1 through 7. So I'll repeat one more time what I said where and when my life does not reflect this list, I ask for accountability right then. And my commitment will be to be of, to have no offense, to take no offense, to not be defensive. Because it's easy for me to say that Eric in the flesh is pretty much the opposite of every one of these things. So again, I say the only thing that will ever qualify me to lead anything is Christ formed in me. In order for that to continue, there, there has to be ongoing sanctification. Sanctification requires the lies to be exposed, the blind spots to be exposed, the deceptions to be exposed, the sin to be exposed, the idols to be exposed. And part of the sanctification process in community is going to be you guys <laughs> being that mouthpiece. I don't care if it's in this gathering, by the way. Okay, clear? The second part um, I mentioned last week is that um, as I see my role as shepherd, one of the things that I will not do is, is widen the path. And um, 
and I want to make sure we're all crystal clear on what I mean by that because this is this one can get um, misheard really easily and it's it's um, it's important to know what I'm saying because I want you to know specifically what you need to expect from me and what you won't ever get from me. Um, so let's read real quick Mark, Mark 10, 17 through 22, and then I'll share a quick testimony. So someone please read Mark 10, 17 through 22. So we're all familiar with this text, obviously. It's pretty straightforward. When I make the statement that I will not widen the path, this is one of the examples that I'm aligning with. And the example from my interpretation is a is a man who is on his way on that journey and he has taken many steps and has a level of awareness and obedience with the ways of God. And the text says that Jesus looked at him and, and what? Loved him. And it was because of his love for this person that Jesus went to the next step. It's so important that you guys hear this. It was because of Jesus' love for this man, he went to the next step. That's so important that you hear that. 
And when Jesus showed him the next step in that man at that point's choice was no thank you, seemingly, based on his response, what Jesus did not do in that moment is say, oh, no, 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 never mind, never mind. Um, just, just sell a little bit of your possessions. He didn't say, oh, no, no, never mind. I, I, didn't, I didn't really mean that, or, or that's not what I was really saying. He didn't say, oh, okay, that, you can do that on your timing when you're ready. He spoke the truth. He showed the next step. And the rest is up to the person. And all too often, all too often in the church, because a pastor loves, because a pastor desires unity and togetherness, and sometimes even just larger congregations and happier easier, more comfortable conversations, that is the response to the difficult steps or to the next steps, the real steps, the ones often where much is on the line. So I think it's super important that you guys hear what I hear in this text. When Jesus loves, he's always gonna take you to the thing that's coming between you and the Father. That's an act of love. Always. It's always an act of love to bring someone to the thing that's coming between them and the Father. It's going to be an act of love to, to bring awareness to that thing. But you also have to realize that it's also an act of love to not shrink back if they say no. To not change the commandment if they say no. That's not love. In fact, here's how seriously I take that. That has been done so often that to me, that is the actual modern day definition and example of Deuteronomy 13. Meaning that in my interpretation, it is literally false teaching and false prophet and leading that person to a false God to change the rules for them. That's how seriously I take it, guys. Because we do that once. For an example, when, when, when the Lord just gave us revelation regarding Sabbath. Clear instruction by his word. Sabbath isn't Sunday, it's Saturday. That was a revelation he gave us. Everyone in this room grew up going to the church on Sunday. By the word and by his spirit, he showed us the gathering is Saturday. And we changed our gathering time to this time. And there was a time when that was going on when a number of families literally came to me and said, Sunday just works better. Sunday's what we're used to. Sunday's what we've always done. We want Sabbath to be Sunday. 
So the way I take my role, saints, is for me to say, okay, okay well, uh, you know, I don't want you to quit. I don't want you to go. So I'll, so I'll, we'll do Sunday too. We'll do, we'll do Sabbath on Sunday too. To me, that is literally leading them to a false God, a false God that can what? Be changed to meet my needs, a false God that will bend to my desires. The, the trickiest and most dangerous form of idolatry. And every time a pastor to make something easier or to keep people happy or to establish false unity keeps making the path wider, God gets changed more and more and more and more to where pretty soon it's, it's, not, it's nowhere near the God of the Bible. And people follow that false God that meets all their, all their needs and they, that they don't have to make a decision for ever. They follow him all the way to the death, literally. And then you get uh, Matthew chapter 7. Lord, Lord, didn't we? Heal in your name. Prophesy in your name. Cast out demons in your name. And Jesus will say what, Miss Naomi? Depart from me. I never knew you. You who do what? Practice lawlessness. What is lawlessness? The not keeping of God's commandments. How dare any pastor, when someone is given their next step, but they won't take it, how dare any pastor change the commandment? That's a false teacher. Leading that person to a false God that they can now carve and shape and mold to their desire. And it's not love. So I can't do it. And that sounds harsh sometimes, and that sounds unloving sometimes, but... I pray that we all have eyes to see that it's the opposite. Another example I can remember when, when the Lord was just giving us revelation regarding Easter. It was, it was around the same time. And, and uh, you know, we, we, we came up upon the date and I was like, we're, we're just not doing Easter anymore. We're not doing an egg hunt. And, and um, I, I remember someone Facebooked me and, um, and literally said, you're taking this thing way too seriously. Uh, and then, and then, and this was really literally one of the first times I began to recognize idolatry, um, being the, the, the changing of the God of the Bible, because she said specifically, um, you're taking this thing way too seriously. Um, I'm going to keep doing Easter because my God just wants me to be happy. And, and to that person, a pastor with a soft heart could easily go to them and say, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't, this, this might be too big of a, of a, of a, of a stretch for you. So yeah, we'll, we'll do an Easter egg hunt. Come back. I'm not going to do it. Not if it causes me to break a commandment. Not if it causes me to go against what's written. Not if it causes me to widen the path. I say that again because I need you to know what to expect from me. I won't widen the path. I won't excuse sin. I won't allow for justification of sin. And I say all that within the context of what I said just before that, which is we're all in a battle. A battle with what? Sin. 
And in that battle, we're going to have losses on a regular basis. Okay, so back to Diane's question, what do we do then? How do we walk this out together? With a refusal to widen the path, with a refusal to change what's written, with a love and commitment for one another that's real. How does the community respond? That's a question I have. So let's read a little bit. Matthew chapter 18. This is one of those chapters that um, we're going to read it today, but my encouragement is to read it more this week. Read and meditate on this teaching more this week because it, 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 it involves um, is it, it involves things that often get misunderstood and mis, in, in particular as it relates to this topic. The topic of confronting sin, the topic of um, dealing with sin congregationally, the topic of holiness, the topic of mixing, the topic of pretty much the whole Bible. This is a neat chapter that brings a lot of it together. Alright, so let's read this out loud. We pray for one more time, Father, for ears to hear and for sanctification by your word. Who's going to, anyone want to read for us? Go ahead, Kirby. Thank you. Okay, so that is a statement about what? Exactly right. Let's just pick this thing apart and be very, very clear about what Jesus is saying. The first thing he says to the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom? The first thing he says is what you got to do to be in. Right? And it ain't sanctification. It ain't works. It ain't trying harder. It's not obedience. It's not keeping the law. It's not being circumcised. It is being converted. And he hits on the, the same, essentially same message he told Nicodemus, which is one must be born again. Okay? That's the regeneration process. That is justification, having your heart of stone removed with a heart of flesh, being given a new heart and a new spirit, becoming a brand new creation. Adopted, saved, clothed in Christ, seated in Christ, one with Christ, buried with Christ, sealed, sealed in Christ, name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. His first statement is about justification. Yes, sir, continue. Verse 4, therefore, whoever 
whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Keep going, please. Verse 6. Jesus warns of offenses. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Okay, listen to that very carefully. What is sin? Lawlessness, right? If we stick with what's written, sin is lawlessness. What is lawlessness? The breaking of God's divine commandments. So to cause anyone to break a single commandment, this is the punishment. How opposite of the false teacher or the false prophet is Jesus speaking here? Right? It's so critical. We hear. Well, someone's hungry. <laughs> okay, continue, please, Kirby. Now what process is, is Jesus talking about? And the, and the teaching is specifically for what? Pruning. Pruning what? What's causing you to sin? Your old man, your old flesh, your old habits, your old appetites, your old idols, your old mistresses, your false gods, your deceptions, your lusts. This is literally the sanctification process. And, what's, and how serious is Jesus teaching on it? Cut it off. Whatever it takes. Does Jesus love? Perfectly. Is, just, is this a hard teaching? Is he watering this down? Is he, is he, is he taking people's feelings into account? Right? Not that there's not that there's anything wrong being gentle. I'm I'm not saying, I'm not speaking against being gentle. But Jesus never waters down the truth. He is razor sharp with the truth. And he's speaking truth about sanctification right now and how important it is that we not stop moving forward. When the thing that's Jamming you up is getting exposed. Is that fun? Gosh, guys, it's never fun. It's always going to suck. When the thing that's jamming you up is getting exposed, that's always going to suck. What the Lord is trying to do right now, I believe, is establish in this community that that's the truth. And yet it can't be changed. We can't stop we can't quit. We can't change what's written. We don't change God. We don't change his ways. We don't change his commandments. We don't change to where he's leading us. We don't broaden the path. We carry each other through this. We encourage each other through this. Right? We do it together.
Kirby, keep going, bud. I pray that every time every one of us are jammed up and we're clinging to an idol and it's coming between us and the Lord and either by his word and his spirit or by the spirit in one of us, that thing comes to light. I pray that we recognize it as an act of love. I pray we recognize it as the most significant. Okay, now let's get into the confusing part. Keep going, Kirby. Verse 10, the parable of the lost sheep. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not so what is that text about? Okay. There's a grace element. Absolutely. What else? What's that? Mm-hmm. God pursues us. Go back to the first sentence. Read that again, Kirby. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you, that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father. What does that mean? What do you think it means when it says their angels? Right, who are we talking about here? I think we're talking about someone that God is predestined for adoption. Okay. So this is someone that God has chosen. Right? This is a saint that God has chosen. They have their own angels in heaven. And God's not going to lose any of his own. So this, so this text is ultimately about what? I think it's about evangelism. I think it's, it's that Jesus came to go and collect those that are going to be collected. Because, because here's why I think that is. If, if, this was, um, if this was about discipleship, And what Jesus is teaching is that you leave the disciples that are in alignment and walking it out to go after the, the one that's rebellious. I don't see that actually illustrated in Jesus's life. Do you? When Jesus talked... When Jesus spoke, what was the result on most of the people? They, they, they left. 
Did they not? When Jesus talked, most people left. The more Jesus talked, the more people left. To where when he got to the end, he had 11. Right? So if, if Jesus did it right, and Jesus is the model, and Jesus is the one into whose image we are being sanctified and conformed, the one thing I never saw Jesus do is chase. Ever. And by chase, I mean change or water down or make it easier or make it more fun or make it more appealing or lessen the cost or, or water down the truth. I never saw him doing that. So much so that you guys remember when one of the, one of the final times he had more of a gathering around him and he, and he basically said to have part with me, to have a part with me, you got to do what? Drink my blood and eat my flesh. Right? That was a confusing teaching. This is where Jesus said the words that I speak are spirit. Right? It's only going to be heard by a few. And when Jesus said those things, what did most people do? They left. You never saw Jesus run after him. And in fact, if Jesus did constantly go after them, would he have ever accomplished his singular mission, his purpose to go to Jerusalem? Right? So there, there is at least some aspect to how Christ walked out his ministry that was different than what most people say. Because most people say or think Jesus left the 99 to get the hunt, to, or Jesus left the 99 to get the one. Well, he, Jesus didn't do that. He does teach that in this teaching, but is his, as his example, I don't see him ever do that. But by his entire life and ministry. If this text is about evangelism, then Jesus is going after the, the saved, specifically. Because the text in this teaching ends with what? God's not going to lose one that he has chosen. So there is a part of God not losing any that he has chosen that couples with Jesus' example of, I'm never going to make it easier. I'm never going to make it more acceptable, more appealing. I'm never going to widen the path. I'm never going to change the commandments. Somehow those two things are reconciled. And maybe the example is because of the next teaching. The, the reason chapter 18 is so powerful is because each teaching contributes to the one before this is why we're not going to grasp the whole thing today. I'm confident of that, but we are as we continue to read it. So right after the, the, the parable of the lost sheep, we get a very specific teaching. A teaching on what? Discipleship in community. Dealing with sin in community. All right, so let's read what's written here. Kirby, go ahead. Verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against 
Okay, now that's a very important bread letter teaching. Someone paraphrase what Jesus just said there. Kirby, you read it. What did you hear? then change the truth no. No. right then make the pasture bigger then make the path wider okay, guys I know this is hard I know it feels unloving Exactly right. Why is that so important? Listen to what she said. Put up boundaries where God tells you to put them. What's God trying to build here? A collection of sinners? Right? He's trying to build a house in which he can dwell by his spirit. Right? The church is not non-believers. The church is believers. The church is saints. And when saints are doing community together, the instruction by Jesus' mouth is if someone is sinning, you need to go tell them they're sinning. Gosh. It's so simple, but my goodness. Exactly right. 100%. On that thought, Michael, let's go to, so he says, um, if he refuses to hear, this is a believer, right? Judgment does not take place outside of the church. We're about getting ready to read that. This is for the believers. This is for the saints. If, if, a, if, if, if a, a brother is sinning and the, the correct steps have been gone through, what are the correct steps? What's the first one? Okay, this is, your, this is your answer, Diane. You literally asked for it. We did not talk before service. Everything she said, I had absolutely no part of. What did she say specifically? I don't know what to do. When I see someone sinning, when I see someone in deception, when I see someone struggling, I don't know what to do about it. My flesh wants to go talk over here with these people. Right? I don't know what to do about it. Literally, this is what's written. For the, for the community to experience sanctification in community, this is the prescription. Sanctification is going to be the ongoing removal of pollutants. Right? As an act of love. The ongoing removal of the things coming between us and the Father. You can do all these right commandments. When Jesus loved the rich young ruler, he, he went to the step that was coming in between him and the Father. He went to the idol that was coming in between him and the Father. As an act of love, he exposed that thing. And then he left that person to deal with it. When they walked away, he didn't chase them. When they walked away, he didn't justify it. When they walked away, he didn't change the instruction. Right? One-on-one. -on -one. If one-on-one -on -one isn't enough, then what? Grab someone else and go. Get two or more, or two or three. 
right? To deal with sin, to expose and deal with sin. Why? Because that's real love. To leave any sin unexposed is to literally leave each other suffering, is to leave, leave each other hurting. We have to see it that way. I don't care how appealing the sin is. It's always going to be appealing because the battle is real and the flesh is powerful. Not powerful. The flesh is strong, we'll say. Okay, if, if the two or three don't bring him to repentance, then what? Bring it to the whole church. Whew, now we're getting real uncomfortable. I've never seen this happen. I've never seen it walked out in real life. Praise God. It's going to start happening here too. Because, because and, this is the, and this is the key, guys. If when it's fully exposed, they choose to still stay no, what's the response? Treat them like a non-believer. What does that mean? Let's go to 1 Corinthians. I'm almost done. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. What's the heading to the paragraph or the chapter of 1 Corinthians 5? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Why are you confused, babe? What? Oh, oh. Oh, these were, these cha these the verses might actually be wrong. <laughs> it stops at thirteen. Oh, that's where you get to make something up and throw it in there. Okay, let's just let's just start reading First Corinthians chapter five. Michael, this is this is to your point. An absolutely cover to cover theme in Scripture is God will not share space with sin. God will not tolerate sin. God will not accept sin. God will not show mercy to sin or quarter to sin. It's so astonishing to me that the body of Christ can see what God did to Jesus on the cross and believe that he is going to have leniency on our sin. He's holy. He's holy. He can't. He won't. And so if this is to be a holy convocation and this is to be the holy saints of God, and we are to walk out and pursue holiness, we've got to recognize that sin is not welcome. And that is not to say that a sinner is not welcome. That is not to say that we are exclusionatory. It is to say that God has very clear boundaries. And we do not extend those boundaries for the sake of someone that won't submit for the sake of someone that won't obey. 
Because if we extend that boundary and we allow that sin to be present, what does Paul say is just going to happen? Michael, go ahead. Actually, you know what? Let's just go to um, let's go to uh, verse three. We're not going to read verse one and two. You guys can deal with that at home if you want to. But there is a specific sin happening in this church, right? And 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 Paul's getting ready to deal with it. And Michael, go ahead and read from three on. For I indeed, as absent, as absent in body present in spirit have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed in the, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ when you are gathered together along with my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that this spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorifying is not good. Do you, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Keep going, please. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexual immoral people. Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexual immoral people of this world or with the covetous uh, or extortioners or idol idolaters since they, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have, excuse me, for what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Why does God say, what's the Old Testament teach us about mixing? Why does God say not to mix? Surely it will turn your heart away from me. There, there is a theme in scripture that runs from cover to cover that Paul... Paul illustrates with the leaven idea. A little bit of leaven infects the whole loaf. A little bit of mixing affects the whole body. A little bit of permission leads to more permission. The first allowed compromise 
leads to the next allowed compromise. This is why it's so important. This is what Paul is communicating. This is not to the non-believers. This has nothing to do with evangelism. Evangelism has to be leaving the 99 to go get the one. That is the heart of evangelism. This is about discipleship in the church. This is about the fellowship of believers. Right, and Paul says specifically, if someone is just not going to submit, if someone is, has made a choice to continue sinning, what's the response? Don't even eat with them. Now listen to me. Is there sin going on in this congregation? Not this congregation. In Corinth. Yeah. Who's doing it? Everyone. Everyone in the congregation in Corinth is sinning. Right? We're all in agreement there. Why is, why is this particular person called out? Why is this particular sin called out? I'm, I'm honestly asking some questions out loud myself. Because one of the things that you hear constantly when you start talking about sin and dealing with sin is, well, everybody sins. You know, nobody's perfect, so we're all just going to, you know, usually it's said within the context of it's, all, it's just going to justify sin. Yep. So there's an obvious cho choice for re rebellion. Are there sin? Is there sin that is perhaps uh, more damaging in a, in, to a congregation? I mean, to me, that seems pretty like pretty logical. This particular sin is a bigger deal. This particular offense is a bigger offense. It's having a bigger impact, perhaps. Maybe this compromise being as blatant as it is, and you guys can read it, what it is specifically, if this compromise is tolerated, then perhaps every compromise, you know, I'm just sort of speaking out loud, but, but there is a, but here's what we cannot do, because Paul didn't do it. Paul did not justify that person's sin, because that person's sinning also. That's, Paul did not do that. Paul did not say that person can continue what they're doing because I'm still doing this or that person's still doing that. So is there an element to this that has got to be spirit-led? That's the only way I see it and read it. That, that, that God is going to somehow by his spirit deal with the stuff that needs to be dealt with and maybe, maybe we just got to trust that. Trust him. Yes, ma'am. Uh, in 1 Timothy 1 and 20, uh, of whom Hymenius and, and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Exactly so right. They, so if you, allow, if you make allowances or you compromise, uh, all it's going to do is just exactly right. turn into more. Exactly so right. What, what God had Paul do was like, okay, here, here, let me make an example of this. Yep. So that they will learn, they will learn, and the others will understand. That's right. You know, because as is is God in the habit of making an example of one so that others will understand? Oh yeah. Ask Aaron's sons. Oh, and Al. 
You know, many, many, many times God shows by an extreme example exactly where his borders are and boundaries are. And, and, and make no mistake, saints, and this is, the, this is the fine line that the Spirit has to lead us to walk. The line of compassion for the sinner and hatred for sin. Right? Gentleness and patience with the sinner, but absolutely no compromise with sin. We have, we have, we've got to figure that out together. We've got to walk that out together. Because there is prescription to protect the holiness of this gathering. Is there not? There is instruction to protect the holiness of this gathering. And it is love to do that. And it is love to point out when something's not welcome. And as long as the sinner rejects the sin, they're always welcome. Right? As long as the heart is Jesus' heart in the garden that says, not my will, but your will be done. As long as that is the foundational heart, here's my commitment. You have my endless patience. And like I said last week, if you fall a thousand times, but you get up and repent, you're welcome. But as soon as your heart changes to not your will, but my will be done, and I don't care that this is sin, and I don't care that this is idolatry or deception or rebellion, I'm going to do it. I got to stick with what's written. We got to follow the correct protocol to get to a decision. And I pray to God that every time the decision is for sanctification. And if and as this congregation embraces that process, holy cow, guys. The amount of protection that we will experience, the amount of clarity that we will have, the amount of truth that we will walk in. Yes, sir. Absolutely. It's so it's so easy to get offended by this by this message. It's so easy to get offended by last week's message. It's very easy to get offended when we start talking about the things we don't want to give up. Right? And and, and, and here's my experience, guys, the um, when 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 Christ said, If you want pardon me, you gotta drink my blood and eat my flesh, and everybody left. You guys remember what he did next? He turned to Peter, and what did he say to Peter? He said, are you gonna leave too? And what did Peter say? Where else? Where, where else can I go? And guys, until we get to that point, 
until we get to the point where we have put our old life to death. Like literally, this is why Jesus says you've got to put your old life to death. There can be nothing to go back to. When you have absolutely nothing to go back to, that's when we start making the right decision. And that's my prayer and that's my hope and that's my encouragement is that, is that we would just get in one accord as families. There's nothing to go back to. There's nothing to hold on to from their old, our old selves. Nothing. Absolutely nothing to hold on to. If it's not going with us into the new earth, it's not coming with us now. And, and when you get to that point of full abandonment of, of everything but God, the offense goes away, the judgment, the feeling judged goes away, the defensiveness goes away, right? The exact opposite, by the way, we were listening to Proverbs when we went to bed last night and it was just so highlighted to me over and over and over and over again, texts about scoffers. And scoffers are, or fools are, are those that just won't accept correction. And, 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 a, and a, at first a fool will just reject correction. But you can know um, when, when, um, when, that, when that becomes defensive and turns on the offensive, now you're dealing with a scoffer. And a scoffer will attack what's, what's coming against the sin in their life. That's just classic flesh defending um, based on a stronghold or literally like a demonic um, deception stronghold. There's, there's such captivity there that the flesh will try and protect that idol by going on the offensive. And, and, and all of a sudden the church will get attacked, a pastor will get attacked. I mean, I've literally seen it happen a hundred times. The truth will get attacked, the truth will get turned. Right? It's just a scoffer and the Bible is super clear about what to do with scoffers. And it sure as heck ain't chasing. Okay, so we rebuke any scoffing, any defensiveness, and any protection of sin or idolatry is not welcome, is not allowed, and it will not be tolerated. Anytime the exposing of sin happens, it will be recognized as a true act of love. Wanting the best for each other. Believing everything in this book is real in the God who wrote it. Susie, I know you had something to say. Absolutely. And the in the in the in the most common idol, little G God, is the God of the Bible tweaked just a bit. 
often for the sake of togetherness, often for the sake of unity. God, give us eyes to see how to walk through that deception. I don't feel like this is complete, so my encouragement is to continue to read with me chapter 18 so we get clarity. Great clarity on prescriptions for walking this out correct, walking it out in ways that empower and encourage unity. Yes, ma'am. Makes me think of the 